Well, today we get to celebrate Palm Sunday. This is an important time in the annual calendar for believers. You might know that it's only the western half of Christianity that tends to celebrate uh, Easter Sunday on this weekend. Uh, Those who come out of an Eastern tradition won't celebrate Easter for another month. They use the Julian calendar while we use the Gregorian calendar. But at the end of the day, for the course of thousands of years, Christians have paused in the springtime to just especially remember the significant event of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. Palm Sunday kicks off what we would call Holy Week. It's it's the the first uh, day in that week long of events where Jesus begins by coming into the city of Jerusalem. He has set his face towards Jerusalem in order to go to his death. There are some believers who look at the math on it and they go, I think it was Monday he entered. Others say, I think it was Sunday that he entered. There's a variety of different ways that you can view those things. But at the end of the day, what Jesus accomplished in that holy week is something that the world is still reeling from. It had eternal value in every possible way. This morning, I just want to begin by reading from John chapter 12, uh, just a short portion of the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. I'm going to read starting in John 12, verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, as he enters here, is greeted by a crowd of people. These people had heard that he was coming, and they were probably, many of them, some of the people who had been with him, uh, or even in the crowds, a couple of days earlier, when he was raising Lazarus from the dead. A friend of his who had died, he had intentionally not come to him in time to save him from his sickness, and waited till he died, so that he could show the people, I am the resurrection and the life. The Jews had planned to kill not only Jesus, but also Lazarus, because he was a walking witness of the fact that Lazarus proves Jesus was who he said that he was. The people gather palm branches. They go out to meet him. They throw the palm, wave them in the air. They throw them on the ground, kind of make a red carpet of sorts. Some of the other gospel accounts tell us that they throw their coats down for him to walk over. They're acknowledging him as their king, and that's what they say, Hosanna! which is kind of a, it's a Hebrew word. Uh, that, that means, give us salvation now. That's what it means in the Old Testament. They're using that word, Hosanna, Hosanna, give us salvation now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they're looking to Jesus, and they're crying out to him as the king of Israel. The passage goes on to say, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And now John's going to draw on the prophet Zechariah from the Old Testament. It says this, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus coming in on a donkey. It wasn't just a random animal, any random something that he could sit on to come in. This has been prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus would come on the scene be born in this world, that he would sit on a donkey. And why? Because this is what it would said would happen with the king. And that passage begins, as it says that back to that 
that passage in Zechariah, fear not, daughter of Zion. Why would it begin with that? Fear not. Don't fear. Your king is coming. What does it mean not to fear? A man sitting on a donkey coming in. Why, why fear not? Well, because from this point forward, no longer should you fear the rulers of the earth. No longer should you fear destruction from within or invasion from outside. Because true, perfect, lasting rule has come to this city. That's why they cry out to him as their king. They acknowledge what the old text had always said. But you and I, because we have the Bible, we're seated 2,000 years of history later, we look back and we see the account of Jesus coming into the city through the eastern gate, the, the, the foretold Shekinah glory of God coming into the city. So this has been prophesied previous. We know that only five short days later, many of these same voices who heralded Jesus as their king would be shouting, crucify. We must ask ourselves, how does that happen? How does a crowd of people become so fickle that they would turn so quickly? We see instances like this in the Bible. We see, we see people hearing the apostle Paul and Barnabas preaching, and they go, oh, they must be gods. And they go, no, we're not gods. Well, then kill them. You know, that's the, literally the response of the crowds. But here before Jesus, the people turn from praise to curse in such a short time. Why did this happen? Because Jesus didn't live up to their expectations. That's why. Well, we, just, we thought that the king would do this. We thought the Messiah would do that. And when that didn't happen, crucify him. They listened they listened to the wise and discerning amongst them. They listened to the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests. They heard the counsel from the wisest amongst them that said, this man is false. And they turned on him. They were so wrong. Jesus did not live up to their expectations. God's plan looked different than they had anticipated. That same problem is very much alive today. I want to show you this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our passage today is going to be in verses 18 through 31. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, that would be helpful. I will be putting them up on the screen. But I want to show you from this text that the way that Paul, the Apostle Paul, warns the Corinthian church, the Christians at the church at Corinth, the way that he warns them and what he tells them about the worldly perception of the gospel, that all of that still applies today. So I'm going to read verses, one, uh, verses 18 through 31. I will pray, and then we're going to go back through. So follow along with me if you have your Bibles and uh, would like to do that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this this morning... As we read this passage, we hear a warning and an encouragement from the Apostle Paul to this church at Corinth. I pray that we would absorb that as well. Lord, that that same warning would, be, uh, would ring in our ears, would help us, prevent us from going down the path of error, would preserve us in your truth, and would help compel us to share it more boldly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Going back to the first verse there, we, we walk through. This is a famous verse that kicks off this section of 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is Paul's thesis for the first two chapters of this letter. This is the setup for what he's about to continue building on. He started that already earlier in the chapter, and he's continuing on for the next chapter and a half. Our church, like many others in the world, will be celebrating not just Palm Sunday today, Good Friday this Friday, but Easter this coming Sunday, Resurrection Day. And it is the kind of event that is unintelligible to the ears of the world. When we tell the world there's something to celebrate about, we need to have a special day that we acknowledge and we remember this especially. We, we want to point to this and we want to sing about it and we want to make sure that everyone has a chance to hear about this. If you and I were to go out to our neighbors and ask, so how are you celebrating Easter? They'll tell you, chocolate bunnies and eggs. Why? Because they don't understand what it is we celebrate. I hear Christians ask that question all the time. Like, well, what do bunnies and, and, and eggs have to do with Easter? Well, nothing. But what would you expect to come out of the world? It's like, wah, 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 wah. When they hear it, what we tell them Easter is all about, it doesn't make sense. The word of the cross, logos, that's the word. It's the message of the cross, the truth of the cross. It's folly to those who are perishing to the world who is on its march towards death in their sins and transgressions, it is foolishness. It's nonsense. The gospel of a crucified Savior makes no sense to the world. And he continues by saying, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning 
I will thwart. This is a citation from an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 14. That's what's being pointed to here. And this is pointing back to God speaking and explaining that the foolish-looking gospel was always the plan. He knew what he was doing when he sent the Messiah to suffer and die at the hands of his own people. It was not a mistake. It was the master plan. So if when this was first declared in the hearing of the angels in the heavenlies, and they went, someone should tell them, God, did you know that won't make sense to people? The Lord wasn't surprised. Yes, I know. I know it will be folly to them. But I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. One of the reasons that God reveals to us that he does this is so that it would frustrate, so that it would humble even the cleverest amongst us. Psalm chapter 2 says this, another Old Testament passage, verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So if you're hearing in that psalm, in that poetic language, that the kings gather their counsel and that the mightiest and the wisest of them gather together and they say, let's throw off the authority of God and his son, the anointed one, the king. Let's throw all that off of us. We're, we're going to literally go a coup against them. We're going to plan a way to defeat God. And what does it say in verse four as it comes next? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Their attempts to resist his rule. That's just folly. Laughable even. God mocks their little attempts to resist his reign. We see this play out in Jesus' life, don't we? The wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning. How confused they were. How God overwhelmed even the wisest. If you and I were to gather together in Jesus' day, the wisest of the Jews in that crowd who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Get the, the wisest ones, the most trustworthy, the greatest intellects. And we were to ask them, okay, you tell me how the Messiah will come. How many of you think would say, well, he needs to be born and placed in a manger, and he needs to, he needs to come from Nazareth, and he needs to and f- keep filling in the blank of all the things that they, they would say about Jesus, and then he needs to be crucified. He needs to die at the hands of his own people. That's what has to happen. How many would have said that? None. Zero. We just read about a whole crowd shouting Hosanna. Not not just the wise, it's even them there. How many of them understood their king needed to die first? If they were like, yes, to the cross, to the cross, Jesus. They did not know that. Even his disciples, whom he told, I'm going to go die. They were like, I wonder what that means. He goes, I'm going to be crucified. I wonder what that, well, okay. So we're going to win? Yeah, but I'm going to die. I'm going to be scorned and mocked. So they will praise you. Well, you'll see. Even the Pharisees like Nicodemus, who would eventually turn and end up believing in him. I think we're going to see Nicodemus in, in heaven, if you know that name. One of the Pharisees who turned. Even he didn't understand this until after he'd raised. This is why the disciples 
were hiding out after Jesus was crucified. They're not like, Sunday's coming. Here we go. They were weeping. They were mourning. He died. Yeah, he said he would. It wasn't until after he would raise from the dead that it all came to light. After the Spirit of God had been given to all believers in Acts 2, and the day of Pentecost, that the, it would finally just, oh my goodness. That's wiser than we ever thought. Yep. Wiser than your wise men. It was these unexpected things, the suffering, the seeming defeat, the public execution of their king that would result in eternal life. I want you to think about this. The people in that crowd, they knew their scriptures. The Pharisees knew the scriptures. Both those who would cry Hosanna and crucify him knew the scriptures. And this is what they expected. They expected from the scriptural readings that the king would come in conquering and he would conquer their great enemy. They expected that he would permanently take his seat on a throne. They expected that he would exercise his just authority and that once and for all he would provide salvation for his people. And they were right on every one of those accounts. But they were wrong on what it would look like. They thought their great enemy was Rome. Not sin, not hell, not death. They thought that the throne was going to be in Jerusalem on a, on a physical part of their landscape. They didn't realize it was going to be Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth been given to him. They thought he would execute justice with a rod on earth in a sort of way that they would see the immediate benefits. They thought that the way he would provide salvation is by crushing their enemies before their eyes rather than crushing their sin and the penalty due for it. They thought that he would shed blood rather than shed his own. They thought that he would take life rather than give his own. They were right on many accounts and wrong as to how it would look. And through all of this, God destroys the wisdom of the wise. And he did this for a perfect reason. This is kind of like the arrogant MMA fighter who thinks that he's unbeatable, but then gets in the ring with his superior and then has to tap out in front of the watching eyes of an arena full of people and thousands, maybe millions on, on TV and recorded for YouTube videos for forevermore. His defeat will be public, his humiliation demonstrable so that all will know who the real champion is. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Verse 20 says, where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I you to log that phrase, wisdom of the world. But this again is cited from Isaiah chapter 19. This is an Old Testament citation again. In that passage that's being cited here, when he's saying, where is the one who is wise? This is God speaking, mocking, in jest, to the wise counselors who gave counsel to Pharaoh in the days of uh, the Exodus when God's people were in slavery in Egypt. God mocks those advisors. 
whose counsel failed at every turn. They went toe-to-toe with God, and they were crushed. In fact, those very same wise men would eventually beg Pharaoh to let God's people go. Listen, Pharaoh, we've lost. We've got nothing. We've lost. Take our last bit of counsel and surrender to this God. All throughout history, the world and all of its worldly counselors have tried to snuff out the gospel of Jesus. They have brought in their greatest machinations. They have brought in their greatest planners and strategizers, their most atrocious, cruel devices of torture have been turned on Christians throughout history in an attempt to utterly wipe us off the planet, to burn every Bible that exists. And they have failed at every turn. Have you realized that in Christian history, we've not lost one yard? Not given up one point? Every time it looks as though we've been defeated in a season... And we may lose certain battles. But even those losses, as we see them, are part of the victory plan. Planting gospel seeds. When the enemy goes to plant into his fields of harvest to produce worship for false gods, our seeds end up in the mix. There is no way the enemy can win against our perfect king. Apart from God, even the wisest counsel, even the greatest kings, even the most influential voices are hopelessly lost. One chapter later than this, it'll say this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All of his efforts, all of his planning cannot understand in his natural self, what God is actually doing and how he will win. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So we see here, both in this verse and the one previous, I asked you to log that line, wisdom of the world, and here we see wisdom of God. So now we see there are two different kinds of wisdom being referred to. Wisdom of God and wisdom of the world. Wisdom of God, he's about to hammer pretty clearly, is what is true, what is absolute, what is objective. But the wisdom of the world, well, you and I know that well. And if you want a taste of it, all you need to do is turn on the news, any news. Listen to an influencer's Twitter feed. Tune into almost any kind of newscast on the radio. I mean, almost any news source you look for out there, and you will hear celebrated the wisdom of the world. It is the wisdom that says that what is best for little girls is to let little boys into their bathrooms and locker rooms and sports. And It is this kind of wisdom that says, there is no God, but we hate him. It's this kind of wisdom that says brothels and pot shops and french fries are essential, but the corporate worship of the one true God of the universe is not. It is this kind of wisdom 
that says that the best way to eradicate the ills of racism is to make everything about race. And if someone disagrees with you, cancel them as a racist. It's this kind of wisdom that says that anyone who hopes to end the unadulterated massacre of tens of millions of innocent babies in their mother's wombs is violence against women. You know this worldly wisdom well. And if you remember the days before you were saved, you were caught up in it too. But there's nothing wise about that wisdom that's of the world. It was according to God's true, perfect wisdom that he determined that the world would not come to know him through their logic streams, through their rationale, through that version of wisdom that is not wisdom at all. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Instead, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's what's going on. I want to show you one more passage that I found helpful to, to highlight what I think is taking place here. God designed things in the world in such a way so that his purposes will stand. And look what he says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Maybe familiar verses for you. For what can be known about God is plain to them, that's all mankind, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So I'm going to work backwards to make sense of this real quick. Nobody can have an excuse before God to say, well, I was an atheist, but I didn't know you were out there. How can you judge me? Nobody. Nobody can hold to that excuse. Nope. Because in all the things that have been made, all the way back to the beginning of the creation of the world, God has made known even his invisible attributes. What can be known about him? You see that in the very beginning there? Verse 19, what can be known about God? There's lots of you and I cannot know about God. But there are things we can, and he made it known. There is God. There's one right there. You can know that. Everyone can know that. But here's why I'm bringing this in right now. How is it that somebody in the world, in a natural sense, can know there's a God by looking around them? Because they deduce it? No. Because God has shown it to them. That's how. How can a natural man know that there's a God? Because God revealed himself. That's how. Our only hope in humanity to know that there's a God is because he has revealed himself to all mankind universally in this way in such a way that they are without excuse. No one has an excuse because of this. He has done this. Consider it this way. Even the glory of the heavens would not, would not declare the glory of God unless he made it to do that. Get, get what I'm saying? 
God has revealed himself. He has shown himself to the world. He determined that the world would not come to know him through their own wisdom. They cannot come to it that way. And so he shows himself to them. And this plan pleases God. Pleases God. In other words, are you checking what I'm saying? God does not make man just wise enough to understand him. God reveals himself to even unwise people to know that he's there. Get get the difference there? The crucifixion of the king was God's plan A, something that was folly to the eyes of all who were watching. People who had heard him say he'd die and rise didn't understand it. People who later will look back in the Old Testament and go, oh, it said it right there. And notice here, look back at that verse. Look, look at who it is that God saves. Who does he save? Who, or who does the saving first? God does the saving. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Who, who saved? God saves. Who does he save? Those who believe. And how does he save? Through the folly of what we preach. And all of this pleases him. He is pleased that this is how it's to work out. You and I don't deserve this gospel. We don't deserve this kind of grace. We don't deserve to even hear the folly of preaching that we can hear and be saved. All of us have sinned against God and are deserving of being thrown in the dungeon for our treason against the king. And that's that's the plight of every person who will not submit to the lordship of Jesus. They have committed acts of treason against him, and they will be judged for all eternity in hell, separated from him for forever. That is the just judgment for humanity on the basis of our sins. But God, in his perfect wisdom and in his gracious, loving mercy, sent his only son to live a life perfectly. The only one who could do it. And Jesus died as a perfect, blemish-free sacrifice so that all who would believe in him will have eternal life. And how is it that you can believe in Jesus? Because none of you were there. I wasn't there. For 2,000 years, people haven't been present for this. So how, is, how are we supposed to know? By the preaching of what is folly to the world's ears. And that's how God is pleased to grow his kingdom. If you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't turned in faith to Jesus, believed on him, heard the folly of the gospel, God, it doesn't make any sense. I don't have to work at all and I can be saved? Just by belief I can be saved? Well, in my mind, it makes sense that I should pay something and I should go get something to pay. Well, where'd you get that money? Where'd you get, where'd you get that product you're going to pay for? It's his. It's already his. Be like walking into the king's throne room and say, please have mercy on me. And the king says, what will you give me? Um, This lamp. That's not yours, that's mine. You, you You get the silliness of it. By belief, you can be saved. Friend, if you are not a believer today, that's what we mean by believer, someone who believes this. And if you've ever thought believers are, are fools, 
This is what this is saying. In the eyes of the world, it does look foolish. But declared by God, it is not. It is the power of God. For brothers and sisters here, if you've ever had an evangelistic conversation at the end of it, been like, oh, I sounded like such a fool. Of course you did. Do you hear yourself? You're saying that some Jew, some Palestinian peasant who died 2,000 years ago, by that death made it possible for you to have eternal life in heaven? Of course in the ears of the world that sounds ridiculous. Some Christians seem to wrongly imagine that when we share the gospel with somebody, we've got we to do it just right with all the cunning. I know the answer to that one. I can answer that. That problem. I can deal with that issue. I'm good. I'm good. I got this whole thing down. And sometimes Christians wrongly let themselves think that it's like we're blocking so that the Holy Spirit can score. And if we don't block just right, he's like, well, you didn't give me a hold. Oh, brothers, sisters, if you if you've let that thinking come into your mind, you're not gonna witness. You're not gonna boldly evangelize. You're gonna be more concerned about sounding wise to the world's ears. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world will see it as folly, and it is the wisdom of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Pause before we move on to the next part. Think about, think about what Paul is saying here. Jews demand signs. Why does he say that? Well, because Paul was a Jew. He knows this. The Jews grew up um, idolizing and, and pointing back to it. their heroes, who were these miracle workers of the Old Testament. Moses, Elijah, Joshua could stop the sun by praying to the Lord. Uh, David had no business throwing a stone and killing a giant. These miracles that happened, that's who they would look to. Jews demand signs. That's, they're that kind of person. Greeks, that's the other half of the, of, the, of the audience here with Paul, right? Greeks, those are the ones who grew up idolizing Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, the philosophers of the age, those who are good at articulating difficult to understand things and to teach. So Jews want this and Greeks want this. Providentially, if you, did you realize, Jesus gave the greatest signs of any human in history. And he gave the greatest wisdom of any person in history. But that wasn't enough for them. In fact, the largest crowd that ever gathered around Jesus that we know of was uh, at the, the uh, feeding of the 5,000. Might have been 10, 15,000 people there. We don't know. But 5,000 men, so house, heads of household counted. And Jesus fed all of them. And they were amazed. This was like a miracle. That they, they were mind blown by this. How many of them stuck it out with him? Just his disciples, the same who came with him before. 12, 20, 100, 120, depending on which group of disciples is talking. A tiny amount. The giant crowd that came and saw his great signs left. So what that you demand signs? The most faithless generation in Israelite history. Might be overstated. <laughs> the, those wandering in the wilderness saw the greatest signs in all of human history prior to the days of Jesus. And they were too afraid to go into the promised land. Greeks, they seek the wisdom. But I want you to consider for a moment here. 
God did not intend for his gospel to be believed because it produced miracles or because it sounded wiser to worldly ears. Like a Christian could do a debate, a public debate, which is fine. I think that there's definitely good ways for that to be very fruitful. But that a Christian could win a debate, and then as long as he, that, he, he won more points, then everyone would go, okay, we'll give our lives to Jesus. You, you obviously won. God did not intend for his gospel to be spread that way and to multiply that way and to bear fruit that way. And that's what this whole passage is saying. I want you to consider again, Paul is saying this, and God authenticated apostles like Paul with signs. Paul rose people from the dead, raised them from the dead. Paul was one of the wisest philosophers in early history. Even atheists look back and read Paul's writings and go, this guy was genius. And yet, while Paul could have given them signs, he could have spoken with great eloquent articulation of truth. He didn't. Paul refused to give the people what they wanted. I want you to let that soak in for a second. Paul refused to give them what they want. What did he give them instead? A stumbling block and folly. They wanted signs and wisdom, but we preached Christ crucified. We gave them a stumbling block and folly. That's what we gave them. One of the most ridiculous things that a church can do in our age is to try to please the world. It is utter folly, and it happens every day. You know, there are pastors who refuse to mention people's sin or hell publicly. Do you know the, re- you know the reasons? I've, I've met with pastors like this. Like, well, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell somebody that what they're doing is sin. What? Why? I wouldn't tell them they need to repent. Why? Well, because it would be a stumbling block to them. Yeah? Well, because it, it wouldn't make any sense. Like, why would that be a sin? That's exactly what Paul says. They wanted signs and wisdom, and he gave them stumbling blocks and folly. That's what he did. We must tell the truth. This same Paul will write to the Corinthian church again, a second letter. I'm going to read for you 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite passages on this topic. This is what Paul says. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. No games. We're just going to tell you. We're just going to tell you the truth and let God deal with it. We will not mess with it. We will not adjust the gospel. And for the past couple generations, especially in the West, Christians have been going, how can we make the gospel more palatable? The answer is, stop preaching it. And they went, okay. It only took a couple of steps to get there. Because if you are committed to pleasing the world, first of all, you can't do that and love God at the same time. You can either be a friend of God or a friend of the world. That's it. It can't be both. But also, you will find yourself beginning to operate with the same wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God, which is the solution 
for the worldly wisdom problems. We must tell the truth. Of course it's going to sound like folly to the people. It may even be a stumbling block to them. But you must tell them the truth. And this is love. One of the things that just blew my mind this last year is all of a sudden, Christians turned to the world and said, you tell us how to love you and we'll do whatever you say. What? And the world says, you love us by shutting down your churches. And how many did? Love us by complying with everything that the world is afraid of. Fear with us. We're not okay just fearing alone. We want the Christians to fear death and man with us. Brothers and sisters, we've got to turn back and go, nope. Stubbornly refuse. I will not fear what you fear. Not happening. Well, love us the way we want to be loved. No way. I'm going to love you the way God told me to love you. Because it's not real love to go any other way. That's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world tells you to not mention sin, not to point out the problems and errors right there in a person's life. We must love people so much that that love will help us overcome any fleshly obstacle for declaring what is true. Guys, I know it sounds like just stubbornness and anger to the world when we want to preach the gospel. I know that. That's that's what he's saying. But it's a demonstration of trust in God and love for people. I love you too much to not tell you the truth. I love you too much to let you lay down on those, those tracks as the locomotive is coming and not say anything because I don't want to offend you. In fact, if possible, I would drag you kicking and screaming off the tracks. Guys, that's real love. Don't buy what the world says is love. And I'm off track. But what happens when we do preach Christ crucified? What happens when we actually do stick to what the word of God says and just declare that without tampering, without cunning? What what is the result? What is the fruit of it? Well, Look what happens in the next half of this sentence, the next verse. But to those who are called, those who are called, but they're hearing the same message, the same folly. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, either camp, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. They will receive it as Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That means that there will be some who will hear the message of the gospel proclaimed. Both those who come from the camp, the Jews who want the signs, and those who come from the camp who want the wisdom, Greeks. If we proclaim boldly the truth, those who are called will receive it as the power of God and the wisdom of God. This means that the crowds will just vacate after hearing the folly of the truth proclaimed. But there will be some who will remain. I want to hear you say that again. Something about that. I just... How can they do that? Because they're being drawn. That's why. Because they are those who are called. God is working on their hearts. And brothers and sisters, you may have seen this. This may have been you. You may have been in the crowd or heard the gospel a thousand times. You might have grown up in a gospel-preaching church and heard the gospel virtually every Sunday and rejected it, rejected it, rejected it, rejected it, and you were one of the crowd who just left And then at some point, God does a work in your heart, takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, turns you alive, regenerates your soul, and all of a sudden now, I heard this a thousand times, but I believe it now. 
Brothers and sisters, you and I are to proclaim the truth and let the rest be in the hands of God. You and I cannot be certain about who is being drawn. We can't always identify it from the outside. It's our job to scatter the seed, to be a witness to all mankind without discriminating and leave the rest to God. And look what he's going to say in just a couple of verses from now. Look, look, at, look at how he adds to. What's this body of believers made of? First he says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So real quick, does this mean that there are parts of God that are kind of foolish? Less wise parts of God? No, not at all. This is referring to the same foolish, using that same word for foolish that they were using earlier, the same word foolish that the people think, the logic of the world in their wrong judgment of God, the stuff that the world would judge as foolish. But look what he says next. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. God did not assemble his dream team by trying to gather together all the valedictorians of the world, those who've achieved. It's not as though Peter was voted by his high school class most likely to succeed or something like that. The believers are not those who we could go, we were chosen because something in us. No, the opposite is true. But notice before we jump on past this to say how beautiful this is, Notice, not many is the language used. Not many of you were this way. Not many of this way. Why is that kind of important? Because God is not a classist like so many people in our day. God is not a respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. Yes, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, every social class, some kings, some governors. Yes, all throughout our age. This is not just a prosperity kind of gospel, nor is, it those, nor is it a gospel for the elites. There will be some that he will save from there as well. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Look at those words, foolish, weak, low, and despised. Guys, this is what the world will think of us. This is what the world thinks of us. We must expect hostility from the world. And I think that we're in a season right now, I think we're in a season where we should expect an increasing amount of hostility in our, in our current flow. I suspect that's what's gonna, it's gonna look like for the next several decades here. And that's the way that God wants it to be. Did you see that language God chose? Let me read this again, and I'll give a different emphasis. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God did that. It was his plan. He wanted it to go like this. Sometimes God chooses the barren woman to give birth to the son who will come from him will come an entire nation of peoples. Sometimes that's the way God goes. Sometimes God chooses to lead his people into an ambush against the Red Sea. Uh, Moses, are you sure this is the best way? God said. Why? For his glory, to, to display his power. Sometimes God sends tens of thousands of trained warriors away and keeps only 300 to destroy the innumerable horde. 
Sometimes God takes the least trained person on the battlefield to kill the giant rather than all the warriors who've been fighting all their lives. And God chose for his only son, the king of all the universe, to be born in a stable, placed in a manger, to grow up as a carpenter, to be rejected by his own, mocked, spit upon, tortured, and crucified for his great and glorious purpose. Why? God, why did you do it this way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I think that if we were to, at the beginning of the universe, God creates everything. He makes an earth. He creates mankind. He places us in the garden. He creates these angels, this glorious class of being who serves him and worships day in, day out. If he were to have sought counsel and asked the angels, how should we work things out for my greatest glory and the joy of my creatures. Not one would have come up with this plan. No one would. And certainly we wouldn't have. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God works things out in this way to rob us of the opportunity to boast. Have you paused and asked yourself the question, why did I accept the gospel and my neighbor did not? Why did I accept the gospel and my brother, who went to church as much as I did, who was raised by the same parents, why did he not and I, I do it? Why? Am I wiser? Am I, am I smarter? Am I holier? Am I just stronger? Is there, some, is there something in me that makes me so much preferable? Is it, is it like, oh, God, I'm so glad that I have these attributes that made me choose this rather than him have those attributes that made him not choose that that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is not just so that we won't do it. Well, I, I obviously could boast, but I, I will neglect to boast while in heaven and only praise you, God. That's not the thinking. So if the Lord were to ask us in heaven, why are you here? Well, you and I know one of the reasons, but I won't, I won't bring that up. The other ones, no, of course not, of course not so that no human being might boast. This is why he did it this way. Believers are not just the wiser ones in our natural selves. Like, like we're, we're the ones that God made, and he goes, make sure to sprinkle some wisdom on some of them. Okay, so some of them have wisdom. Got it, good. Now, in their selves, they will, they will figure this out. No. Our salvation was not about us so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is exactly what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved. It's a gift. God has gifted us our salvation. How? By faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All believers can celebrate this without a question. Okay, we didn't work there. Good. Not a result of works. For what reason? So that... No man may boast. That's why he did it this way. That's why it worked out. He works out our salvation in such a way that he gets all the glory and we get eternal benefit. 
This famous and important passage is used to warn the Christians at Corinth to not be influenced by the way the world denigrates the gospel. This is in part a warning for us. We can take this. Don't fall for the lies of the world. They're going to try to tell you things by worldly wisdom. And because you and I still are in the flesh, we, we might be able to buy some of those lies if we're not careful. We still think with our meat between our ears, okay? We're still limited in this way. And so we're still susceptible to lies, brothers and sisters. That's why the whole New Testament doesn't go, ha, lies can't stick to you. You're a Christian now. The whole New Testament goes, don't believe those. Don't let it in. Don't listen to worldly wisdom. The whole New Testament warns us because why? We're still in the flesh. You gotta watch out. It's gonna be a war day in and day out. Your regenerate spirit self fighting against the flesh self, and you're going to do this every day against your own sins and against your own thoughts. Don't listen to the lies. You and I must refuse, refuse to believe the lies of the world. Not one, not one, not even a little bit of one. And we must train our children to be boldly and rigidly resilient to worldly wisdom. We've got to do this. We've got to show them that when the world tells lies, we go, nope. But, but the facts, I don't care. I don't believe one word. You lost all credibility. And until we do this, we may run the risk of the same error as the people present for the triumphal entry. This brings us back to this huge idea. We do not want to amass around us people who say, ah, Jesus will provide a kind of solution that I want. Well, he'll, he'll do the things that in my worldly wisdom I, I would hope that he would go do. He'll make my life look better. He'll solve my earthly problems right now. He'll make all things better for me here and today. That kind of thinking, five days later, turns into crucify him. Brothers and sisters, there were no saints who fully understood, fully understood on the triumphal entry day, fully understood what it is Jesus was going to do. It was folly still even to them. First Corinthians had not yet been written for them. They did not have the Spirit of God gifted to them as believers like we do today. We, Jesus says that after he, he leaves, he'll send the Holy Spirit. There will be a new way that the Spirit of God will seal the hearts of people after Jesus' resurrection rather than before. And you, got, you and I get that benefit that they never had. But back then, all the people were confused. And you and I must stay bound to our word, the Bible. We must stay bound to what God has declared. And when worldly wisdom, either from outside or brothers and sisters from within, from your own selves, you, you and I are full of flesh too. It can come from us. We have got to hold the word of God and mine through it and press all of those thoughts through. Take every thought captive to the word of God. Pin it to the ground. Expose it with the light. Shine it in the eyes and go, you're a lie. Get out. Or you're true. Remain. Brothers and sisters, it's my fear, my concern that if we don't do this more and more as churches, we will not get to see the recovery from so much loss that we've incurred as a culture in our day. My hope is that we set up the next generation to win 
We don't want them to be those who say crucify, but that they say Hosanna, that they will continue to sing like we did earlier today, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, and they will do that for forever and ever and ever without a hiccup. Let's pray that that would be true for us. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful for your word that warns us, that guides us. You call out exactly what we interact with and deal with on a daily basis. The wisdom of the world is going to lie over and over and over. Father, I pray that we'd be resilient to those lies, that we'd let your word wash over us in such a way that no lies could stick, and that we could, in our worship, continue to invite more and more people into the truth by proclaiming what is true without tampering, without cunning, and even as we know it is folly to the ears of the world, watching you bear fruit with this mighty word. We love you, Lord, and we ask for these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.